If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Please be advised that the descriptions in this podcast are graphic. This is Chapter 5 of Blood and Truth, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Today, DNA Denied. I'm Leonora Lapeter Anton. This story is about a man who has served 42 years on Florida's death row. He says he's innocent. For more than two decades, he's been asking the state to allow for complete DNA tests of the evidence in his case. Florida keeps saying no. One day in November 1987, Tommy Ziegler sat on his cot in his cell reading an article in the Orlando Sentinel. It was about a warehouse supervisor who had been convicted of rape. A young prosecutor in Orlando had ordered a DNA test in the case. It was the first conviction using DNA in U.S. history, and it had happened in the same court where Ziegler had been convicted 11 years before. When I interviewed him last year, Ziegler took me back to that day he first learned about DNA. I was at Florida State Prison. And uh, a friend sent me the article. And when I read the article, I said, whoa, you know, if if this will convict a man, it will also clear a man. A scientist had explained in the story that DNA molecules live in every cell of the body. They resemble long spiral ladders that can be broken into pieces with enzymes. When the pieces were placed in jelly and underwent a process called electrophoresis, the ladders settled into distinct bands that could be compared. These genetic fingerprints could be extracted from blood, semen, hair roots, and skin. The young prosecutor, Jeffrey Ashton, told a reporter at the time how exciting the breakthrough was. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing for prosecutors and for defense attorneys, he said. It's a truth-finding tool. Ziegler remembered state attorney Robert Egan demonstrating for the jury at his trial how Ziegler had held his father-in-law in a headlock while bashing him with a metal crank. If that was true... Wouldn't the man's blood have to be on the shirt that Ziegler wore that night? And I read that article twice, and then I wrote Terry Hadley and Vernon Davids, my two trial attorneys. And I told them, I said, I want this, and I want you to get me every damn thing you can find on DNA, because I'm going to be a DNA expert. Ashton, the man behind the conviction of the warehouse supervisor, was originally from St. Petersburg. 
He had attended Boca Ciega High School, where he gravitated toward theater and was in the drama club at the same time as Angela Bassett. Yeah, that Angela Bassett, now a major actress in Hollywood. In college, Ashton had originally majored in philosophy but switched to the law. He graduated from the University of Florida Law School and got a job as an assistant state attorney working for Robert Egan, the man who prosecuted Ziegler. We spoke with him last summer before he was elected circuit judge. Here's Ashton explaining how the first DNA conviction developed. Sometime in the mid-80s, I saw a, um, a news report about some work being done in England having to do with some sort of uh, blood testing that looked at blood at the DNA level. I later learned that what I was hearing about was the work of, of uh, Dr. Jeffries in England. At the time, it was just something interesting. And so, you know, I, I, I saw it, didn't think anything of it. The science had originated in the lab of a British geneticist named Sir Alec John Jeffries, and the process had been used to arrest a murderer and rapist in England. Uh, some months later, um, I happened to run across an ad in this weekly publication called the Florida Bar News. It was basically a drawing of a baby, and the caption read, he's wearing his father's jeans, G-E-N-E-S. And I saw that, and I thought to myself, I wonder if that's something similar or related to what I remembered seeing on the news. So I contacted the laboratory, and <clears throat> I asked them, I said, well, you know, is this a, a forensic identification process? And they said, well, yeah. What was advertised was our paternity testing, but we are now going online with forensic testing. I didn't have any rape cases on my caseload at that point. So I, I kind of sniffed around and found um, another lawyer in our office that had a, um, a serial rapist. He had one person charged in, I think, six different cases. So I went to that lawyer and we, we, we got the samples and we sent them up to the laboratory. And of the six cases, four of them came back um, with an identification and matched uh, Mr. Andrews. Basically, at that point, you know, we proceeded to, to, uh, to move those cases forward. And, you know, we tried him, presented the DNA evidence, and he was convicted. Ashton was about to inherit Ziegler's case. He was 30 years old with a mop top of dark hair and an aggressive nature. He gravitated to prosecuting because, he said, he only wanted to fight for something he believed in. He would later become known for prosecuting Casey Anthony, who was found not guilty of killing her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee. And at one point I'd expressed, you know, that, that Mr. Egan was retiring at the end of 1988, and I would, that I would love to have worked with him on something, you know, before he left. And so I was allowed to basically carry Mr. Egan's briefcase for this resentencing. Ziegler was back in court due to an error by Circuit Judge Maurice Paul in the original trial. Paul had, by this point, become a U.S. District Court judge. The U.S. Supreme Court, two years before, had said Paul made a mistake as the circuit judge in another death row case by limiting the number of character witnesses in the penalty phase of the trial. That ruling had led more than 50 Florida death row inmates, including Ziegler, to seek new sentencings. Here's Ashton on what he remembers of being Egan's assistant that day. Even just to, you know, carry Mr. Egan's briefcase, I still felt it would, you know, it was not only important to me, but, but I really wanted to know what this case was about because this case, you know, was sort of an historic case in Orange County, and I'd always heard about it. In fact, 
early in my career, I was, a, um, I was assigned to Winter Garden. Uh, we had a small branch courthouse then, and I was assigned out there. I did all the misdemeanors, and I got to be good friends with all the cops in Winter Garden. And, and uh, the chief at the time that I was out there um, was actually the first officer on the scene at the Ziegler Furniture Store that morning, um, uh, Jimmy Yawn. And so, so, you know, so I knew a lot about the case anecdotally from having worked out there. And so, you know, the opportunity to kind of really get into it was, was, uh, was fascinating. Ashton thought he would get to help Egan, but the state attorney was retiring after more than two decades in office. And I have a very vivid recollection of uh, sitting in the judge's chambers uh, at a sort of pre-hearing uh, discussion where the defense was asking for a delay in the uh, resentencing till early 1989. And I remember thinking to myself, well, obviously Mr. Egan will come back, you know, uh, and, and do this sort of after he's retired. And when the hearing was over, I remember he stood up and turned to me and shook my hand and said, well, it's all yours. So from that point forward, you know, the, the, the case became mine. Ashton began by looking through the file. I never, I mean, I read through the, the trial transcripts and I, I didn't have any, any doubts because you have Edward Williams and Felton Thomas that are giving very clear testimony and there's absolutely no reason to disbelieve them. And then you have Tommy Ziegler's testimony, which quite frankly just never really made a lot of sense to me. I mean, Why is that? Well, the, first of all, the idea that these people would leave him alive has always been sort of a sticking point with anybody that hears this story, is why do you deliberately murder four people in this store and leave him alive with only a, a, a slight sort of a semi-superficial gunshot wound to the side? It just never made any sense. Dennis Tracy is one of the New York lawyers who began working on Ziegler's appeals around that time, 30 years ago. The law firm where he worked had 20 commercial lawyers back then. Today, there are 2,500 lawyers, and he's in charge of 400 of them in the litigation department. His office has a view of Trump Tower and the United Nations Building and the East River. Before Tracy got involved in his case, Ziegler had warded off two death warrants. He'd almost been executed because his post-trial attorneys had missed an appeals deadline. The NAACP, which recruited lawyers to help inmates sentenced to death, had stepped in and asked for volunteers. Tracy's boss and mentor, Samuel Murphy, had agreed, and the case had been with the firm ever since. Here's Tracy on what they found. We reviewed the file and were dumbstruck, really, with um, how little evidence there was to support the jury's findings, um, how much inconsistent evidence there was that suggested that he had not committed these crimes, incredible unfairness in the way he was treated, Evidence that would have helped him was hidden from him. Evidence that was presented to the, to the jury uh, was in some cases wrong. Critical evidence, including fingerprints and blood subtyping, were lost or never recovered from the scene. And to us, it was, on our first time through, was a complete train wreck of a case where he had certainly not been given due process and had been sentenced to death. 
an FBI specialist had destroyed a batch of partial fingerprints. A loose tooth observed in a crime scene photo had been lost. An FBI analysis of the blood had somehow neglected subtyping, though it had been requested by Ziegler's lawyers. One of the first things that we did when we were hired as counsel was to ask the state prosecutor's office for all the records that they gathered as part of their prosecution of Tommy Ziegler. We got a number of shocking revelations at that time. Uh, Documents that had never been turned over to the defense that were exculpatory. Reports um, that could have been used to potentially exonerate him. Uh, But one of the things we got, we were so excited when we found it, was this tape They found a tape recording of a state's investigator interviewing a man named John Jellison, a tourist from Minnesota, on April 20, 1976. Jellison and his family had stayed at the Winter Garden Inn, which was adjacent and behind the Ziegler Furniture Store that Christmas Eve. Jellison said he was standing outside his hotel room when he saw a police officer arrive at the furniture store, holding a gun, and then heard some shots. That contradicted the prosecution theory, which contended that everyone had been shot before police arrived. Tracy provided a copy of the recording he found. Hello? Hey, is Mrs. Jellison there? Uh, she isn't here right now. Oh, is this Mr. Jellison? No, he isn't here either. You're the son? Yes, right. Okay, my name is Jack Bachman. I'm calling from Orlando, Florida. Uh-huh. I believe your mother <clears throat> talked to my boss, Mr. Egan, yesterday. Right, right, she did. Were you down here then? Ah, uh, yes, I was. Well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Really? What, what is your name, John? John, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, really, we didn't uh, observe very much here. We can't really add much more than, you know, uh, what you got there already. Right. We ate supper in the hotel there. And we came back to our room at the high school to be... Uh, between 8, 15, 8.30. Then we uh, sat around a while and wrote some postcards, and I was, I, uh, was going to go over to the, uh, the office there in the motel and mail them. Went to the door, I cracked the door, and I was just going to walk out, and here's the, uh, there's a policeman out in the parking lot aiming his pistol over the hood of his uh, police car at the back of the building. Right. To get the furniture store. Then we, we uh, heard what we figured were probably shots that Maybe 9 o'clock or so, I said in the letter, that would be about the right time. All right, now you heard the shots. Was this after you saw the police car? Right, right. It was, uh, when we saw the police car, that was the first time we knew anything was uh, going on at all. But you didn't hear any shots, in other words, as you were leaving a restaurant or something, you didn't hear Nothing at all, no. So then you didn't hear the shots then until after the police had arrived there. Right. Well, when your mother talked to Mr. Egan, he was apparently, you know, he is of the opinion that you heard the shots prior to the time the police arrived. No, no, that wasn't the case. Well, I was almost on my way up to talk to you. But, you know, <laughs> but if you heard the shots after you saw the police cars. Then... Yeah, then, yeah. What, is there any new uh, leads or anything? Do you have any information on <clears throat> what? Uh... Well, I mean, you know, we got a man charged. In fact, we got the owner of the furniture store charged. You do? Oh, yeah. He had his wife insured for five hundred thousand dollars. Oh, I see. And the policies were only about thirty days old when he killed her. Oh. He killed
kill her, his mother-in-law, his father-in-law, and a customer in a store. And he was shot himself, but it was a self-inflicted gunshot. Uh-huh. See, this guy is a landlord, and he, uh, you know, he treats these blacks like, you know, they were blacks. Uh-huh. If he tells them to do something, he'll do it. Uh-huh. So what happened was that he told these blacks to meet him there at the store at 730. And uh-huh. he was going to set them up to make it look like a robbery. Oh, I see. And he had them jump the fence in the back. This is this is what we're really trying to find. is somebody that saw him jumping that fence back there. Oh, yeah, right. But, uh, no, as long as you heard the gunshots after, you know, you saw the police cars, and yeah, that wouldn't help us a bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you might tell your mother I called. And, okay, uh. Yeah, you won't need to talk to her or anything, will you? Uh, no, not unless, you know, you all get together and decide you heard those gunshots. No. Before you saw the police car, in that case, we'd give you a free trip back to Florida. <laughs> Here's Tracy again, Ziegler's appeals attorney for the past three decades. And I went back through the, um, through the, the files, the original paper files from the trial, and saw that there is a memo written by Tommy Ziegler's lead trial counsel. And this memo is dated April 20, 1976, the exact date that this conversation took place. It was an internal memo to his own file, and he said, on this date, At 2.50 p.m., I called the state attorney, Robert Egan's office. One of Ziegler's original lawyers had asked if there was any other evidence, and Egan had said no, Tracy said. David Michaeli, a 2009 Columbia University Law School graduate in Tracy's firm, who has worked on the case for seven years, said the tape reveals the police mindset at the time, just three months after the murders. And clearly, Jellison could have been an important witness for the defense. He's telling him what to say. He's also feeding him the whole state theory, right? Here's Hadley, Ziegler's trial lawyer. So these are not evil people. They're doing what they perceive to be their job, and that is to get rid of the bad guys. And if some of this evidence tends to let the bad guy get off, well, we can just kind of ignore it. So what I think was, it was the lead investigator and how he handled this was what dictated how it went. Tracy, Ziegler's appeals attorney, explained the law on this. In order to have a fair trial, the prosecutor is required by the U.S. Constitution to give the defense all evidence that could possibly exonerate the defendant so that they can use it at trial. When they appealed this matter, though, the court ruled the attorneys should have requested the information earlier. So let's go back to that resentencing hearing from 1989. At that point, Ziegler's lawyers had hoped at least to get him off death row. In an Orlando courtroom that day, Ashton projected pictures of the four victims from the furniture store on a screen, one after another. He wanted the images to make an impression on the judge now tasked with reconsidering Ziegler's death sentence. Ashton ripped into Ziegler. This kind and gentle man whose heart bleeds for every kitten he owns put a gun to the back of his wife's head and coldly shot her, Ashton told the judge, who would decide if Ziegler deserved life or death. Ashton explained the case against Ziegler. 
He talked about Edward Williams, the handyman who had said Ziegler tried to shoot him, and Felton Thomas, the orange picker, who had seen one of the four dead Charlie Mays enter the furniture store with Ziegler that Christmas Eve. There was the blood spatter evidence, and Ziegler had taken out $500,000 in life insurance on his wife's life. Ziegler's friends and family lined up to attest to his character, something they hadn't been able to do at his original trial. One of Ziegler's friends, a physical therapist at the local hospital, testified that Ziegler was one of the most ambitious, kindest men he knew. Ziegler had paid one family's gas bill and brought groceries for several elderly residents of his family's apartment buildings. I never heard him boasting about any of it, said another friend of the family at the hearing. He just did it. Tommy a bit of an introvert, very focused. Tommy was just, he's one of these guys that was hard to get to know real well. He had, I think, very few really good friends. He knew a lot of people, was well-respected in the community. Ashton also produced a surprise for Ziegler's defense team. He called another death row inmate, Eddie Odom, to testify against Ziegler. Odom said that he and Ziegler had discussed a plan to pay a third inmate up to $20,000 to confess to the furniture store murders. Ashton produced notes written by Ziegler to Odom, providing details of the crime. But the money exchange had never taken place, and Florida had executed the other inmate in 1986. Under cross-examination, Ziegler admitted he discussed a plan with Odom out of desperation. Ziegler said he felt as if the state had ramrodded this thing down my throat. I'm not guilty of it, Ziegler testified. I felt like I had no other hope. That's not a very good answer, but it's the truth. The back and forth with the prosecutor got so heated that the judge asked Ashton not to approach Ziegler in an aggravating manner and to keep it calm. The judge at Ziegler's resentencing would ultimately decide that he should stay on death row. The battle over the DNA was just beginning. So the first request for DNA testing was was 1992 or thereabouts, um, which must have made it one of the earliest requests filed by anybody in the country for DNA testing because the technology was really in its infancy at that point. That was Mike Lee, one of Ziegler's New York attorneys. He and Tracy checked after our interview, and the request was actually filed in 1994, which we confirmed with the court record. That was still pretty early. Ashton blocked the DNA testing request, which meant it would go before a judge. When Ziegler first asked for DNA testing, and we objected to it then, the reason being DNA is helpful to identify who may be present at a crime scene. But that was never really an issue in this case. There isn't a DNA result in this case that would be definitive one way or the other, because you have a certain limited number of people that are in that place, and exactly whose DNA is on what, it doesn't illuminate that much. Tracy has no doubt that the testing could provide answers. One of the key questions, or one of the key grounds for the state arguing that Ziegler had to be the killer, was that he had a huge stain of A blood on his shirt and under his armpit. Um, and the other thing the state knew was that Harry Edwards, who had A blood, had been beat over the head by somebody who had him in a headlock. And so they put two and two together with 
only that information and, and told the jury that it was Ziegler who held Perry Edwards in a headlock and beat him to death. And look, there's the A blood to prove it. So we obviously believe that's wrong. Our client said he didn't beat Perry Edwards over the head. He didn't hold him in a headlock. He, he was a victim, not a perpetrator. And if you can just test that blood, we can prove that. Tracy said the state's failure to subtype the blood after the murder meant the DNA testing was even more important. Technology was available in 1976 to subtype the blood into positive and negative, and by doing that, they could have separated out the blood of the different victims. Uh, but they didn't even do it, right? There was no explanation for it. The state held the scene, including all the blood samples, for 15 days after the murders, despite the defense asking to have access to it. It was like taking key evidence and throwing it into a fireplace. Um, and we still don't know why they did that. But Ashton argues not all shootings produce blood spatter. I think most experts will tell you that a single shot from a handgun it wouldn't necessarily be expected to produce blood spatter. Blood spatter happens most often when, when a, a forceful object hits a bloody surface because you have liquid that's being, having force applied to it and that force then spatters. Um, gunshot wounds don't necessarily do that because you're talking about a bullet going into the skin which almost immediately seals around it. So in my experience, you know, having done hundreds of murder cases, no, I mean, it's, it's fact, I'm trying to remember if there any case where there was a significant blood spatter from a single gunshot wound. The courts sided with Ashton and denied Ziegler's DNA requests. The advent of DNA became a subject of interest for Florida legislators who passed a law in 2001 with the intent of allowing post-conviction tests. They were, of course, particularly worried about inmates who were facing death sentences. Former Senator Alex Villalobos sponsored the legislation. Initially, the law gave inmates two years to request DNA testing. A few years after the law passed, former Republican Senator Ellen Bogdanoff successfully championed removing the time limit. You know, when you have a conservative Republican legislature, and I had a couple of very conservative members that were blocking the legislation, mm -hmm. in particular because they wanted to be tough on crime, and they felt like this was just being soft on crime, and I'm like... These people are innocent. <laughs> I don't know how we're being tough on crime when we're putting innocent people in jail. It was, uh, it, it was, a, it was a tough battle because of just a couple of members who um, were determined to block it. And it was, uh, it was the speaker, Alan Benz, who, um, you know, he, did, he didn't, he, uh, it was kind of interesting what he did is he brought us all in to make our case. You know, it's like, why is this a good issue for Republicans? What, what's, you know, all of this? And he kind of, they, they said their piece and I said my piece. He gave me an opportunity to have the bill heard and to convince other members. So we worked it hard. I mean, we had to talk to what, you know, you have 120 members on the House floor. You had to talk to every single member, obviously, other than myself, to convince them. And we ultimately passed it except with one no vote. In 2002, the courts finally allowed Ziegler to conduct DNA testing. Here's Dennis Tracy, Ziegler's lawyer, in an interview this past summer. We made a third motion because Tommy Ziegler's chances were running out. He was running out of appeals. 
The courts weren't listening to us. Nobody wanted to know what the truth was. And so we made a final motion for DNA testing to help with a clemency petition. And as part of that, we asked for DNA testing. And finally, the courts granted it to us. Ziegler's lawyers consulted a blood spatter scientist who recommended a handful of locations on Ziegler's clothing that would determine if Ziegler was the killer. At the time, the tests were costly, $10,000 for each tiny square the size of a fingernail, so a full range of tests were not conducted. Almost a decade after Ziegler had first asked for DNA testing, lawyers removed the clothes Ziegler wore the night of the murders from the evidence locker in Orlando. Scientists tested four squares on the undershirt, orange-red corduroy shirt, pants pocket, and back knee of the pants Ziegler had worn that Christmas Eve. Those were the places they felt would be most telling based on the dispersal of the blood. If the tests revealed blood from Ziegler's father-in-law, it would point to Ziegler as the killer. That might give the state more impetus to execute him. But if they didn't find Edward's blood on the shirt, didn't that mean someone else killed Perry Edwards Sr.? Wouldn't that mean Ziegler was innocent? The results came a few months later. Ziegler's original lawyer, Terry Hadley, went to tell Ziegler's mother, now 90 years old and in a nursing home. There was hope, he told her. Edward's blood wasn't found on Ziegler's clothes. It was found on May's pants. Here's Michael Lee, one of Ziegler's attorneys. He has become a DNA expert. Charlie Mays had Perry Edwards' blood soaked into his pants. And remember, of course, Tommy Ziegler was shot in the abdomen, and he's wearing an orange shirt, and there's blood on it, as one would expect. But that blood was not Perry Edwards' blood. Perry Edwards' blood was found on Charlie Mays, who, according to the state, wasn't even in that store for an hour, at least an hour after Perry Edwards had already been killed. And so one of our many arguments to the courts for a new trial was that these findings are completely inconsistent with the state's theory of the case. We don't send people to death in this country, at least as a legal matter, unless you're sure beyond a reasonable doubt that they're guilty. We don't turn that standard on its head and say, if you can't prove beyond any doubt that you're innocent, then we're going to execute you. Ziegler's lawyers asked to test all the clothing and were denied. They have kept asking, and for advanced testing of all the evidence. One of his attorneys, Michael Lee, explains how the testing could reshape our thinking about that night. To me, and I've said this in open court, is, is like discovering that you have a video of the crime, and yet you won't even play it. On the next episode of Blood and Truth, Deputy Gene Jones called me from Georgia and told me, he said, I want you to know that Perry Edwards Jr.'s granddaughter is married to my son. And she's been telling me for years that she is convinced that her grandfather is involved in the murders and that she actually had eyewitness knowledge that she was with her grandmother, which was Perry Jr.'s wife, and that they actually went to the Colonial Bank in Moultrie, Georgia, and they put a ring in there that was Eunice's ring that was missing from her hand at the crime scene. Catch up with the earlier episodes of this podcast on major hosting platforms. And if you like the series, please rate and review us on iTunes.